any products that are helping to improve seller productivity, seller efficiency, and that sort of connectivity in this sort of now at a minimum hybrid world, in, in the most case virtual virtual world, th- those are things that are going to stay. You're listening to Go to Market Excellence, the show for strategic leaders in B2B who understand the importance of data in accelerating growth. We dissect the innovative tools and data-driven strategies that give forward-thinking leaders an edge in everything from RevOps to customer acquisition. Let's get started. Thanks for tuning in to Go to Market Excellence. This is Dan Cork, host of the show. My guest today is Toby Carrington. Toby Carrington is the Executive Vice President of Global Operations at Seismic, the global leader in sales enablement. Toby is responsible for both ops and enablement at Seismic. And previously to that, he was the held a number of senior leadership roles in operations and finance at Siemens, and he's managed global and regional teams around the world in Singapore, Australia, and Germany. So we're talking about a highly experienced global ops leader. Toby, thanks so much for joining the show today. My pleasure, Dan. Nice to be with you. And we're glad to have you. So when we first met, you told me this crazy story about how you held your first in-person sales kickoff with Seismic literally just days before the stay-at-home orders in February 2020. So, uh, and then obviously you guys were forced to shift to remote learning learning shortly after that first sales kickoff that was in person. So share with us how the uh, timing of all that ultimately contributed to huge growth for Seismic and then even your uh, recent acquisition of Lessonly in uh, August of 2021. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it was a certainly an interesting time. I mean, you know, 2020 and even 2021 has been interesting for, for a lot of people. But uh, when I, so I joined Seismic in late 2019 and one of the biggest things was kicking off our financial year and so forth. And we, we literally had our sales kick off, you know, a week before everything really started shutting down. And, you know, the biggest challenge with that is we were rolling out a brand new sales process, new sales methodology, a whole bunch of new tools and everything like that. And we had the classical setup planned where we wanted to, you know, have a series of follow-up training. You know, my enablement team was going to fly around to different locations in the country, also into Europe and, and so forth, do classical classroom training. We had, of course, had some elements of hybrid training that we were planning on doing, uh, you know, also online and, and so forth. But there was a large part of it that was going to be around, you know, our entire new sales process and sales methodology. And we had to pivot to, you know, complete remote learning for that. So, you know, we were all adapting to a new way of working in general, but it was really interesting because we had really critical time to roll out a whole series of brand new initiatives uh, across the board. Wow. And so, so you, get, you, you do all this work and then you present it in person and then, and then you guys go, all go remote. So, what was the moment? How long after you went remote did you realize, hey, we, we need some kind of like software to help us do this remote learning thing? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. So, I mean, you know, we were doing certain things remote before, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't easy to also to create the the, the content for, for things like that. It was also just the, the sort of concept of rather than two or three days of full virtual training, how we could break that up. And so, you know, like everyone was a combination of Zoom and things like that, but we actually leaned very heavily on Lessonly uh, during that that time. I mean, Lessonly was a great you know, go-to-market partner of, of ours and we leaned heavily on Lessonly during that time. And now, you know, fast forward 18 months or so from there and we we acquired uh, Lessonly because we, we just really saw the utility 
of the platform in terms of both the ease of you know, creation of, of lessons, training, being able to track what's going on, get people certified, you know, and do that in a, you know, in a fun, engaging way, which really complemented our, you know, our core platform. Sounds pretty cool. So it's just going to sound like you're uh, pitching lessonly, which you're not, but it's actually been critical to actually empowering your sales team. So what about the, you know, getting on Zoom and walking through PowerPoints as training falls flat and fell flat for your team when you, you decided that we needed actually to use lessonly and really lean into it? Well, it was just it was just both. I mean, when you've when you've prepared, you know, PowerPoint, and even you know, we 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 prepared a lot of engaging, you know, activities and so forth that we were going to do in person. But when you've prepared a, you know, a three day session from eight until five, and you're going to do all of these different exercises, you have to pivot completely. And so, a lot of that content you might over the course of a day in person mixed up with physical activities, mixed up with, you know, social activities and so forth, you might be able to get through a couple of hundred slides, but obviously you can't do that in a, in a virtual setting. I mean, people fall asleep uh, if you're just clicking through, clicking through slides. So, you know, again, it wasn't just the use of one product. It was having to rethink the entire way that people are going to pay attention. How do you get engagement, you know, via remote means? How do you keep people motivated? How do you also get the, you know, the, the social bonding aspects of things, uh, you know, done in a remote way as, as well. So it was really good in that it really forced us to, to think really hard about how we do these things. And, you know, we talked about the first sales kickoff being in person and then having to pivot from there. I mean, we did our last sales kickoff, like a lot of people did fully remotely, you know, not even in any sort of hybrid way. And actually the scores were the highest, you know, we've, We've gotten in terms of engagement of people with you know with with sales kickoff being being virtual. So you know I think it's a combination of all these things and making sure you mix it up because if you spend all day on Zoom or Teams or whatever type of you know meeting, it's not just the fact that you're remote. You've got to you've got to change the content. You've got to you've got to make it different. You've got to keep it engaged. You've got to keep people's motivation high. You've got to make sure you you know you bring in the uh, the people who are, who are quieter or more introverted, and, and it requires also really different you know facilitation skills and and things like that as well. What uh, you know, there's people that are listening to this or that will listen to this that um you know they're not at the scale of seismic. I mean, you're talking about you know a growing sales team. What, at what point do you think? it makes sense to actually invest in something like a remote sales learning technology so that other people can can kind of have a sense for when they need to make that investment at their own company i mean when you when you're thinking about sort of sales enablement maturity i mean really we we have customers at at all sizes and scales from the biggest customers in the in the world that have really complex you know content challenges as well as you know readiness challenges and so forth but we also have you know, small customers that might only have five or 10 uh, salespeople, but the challenge is still the same. I mean, there's a war for talent out there. You've got to be able to recruit good talent. You've got to be able to retain them and you've got to get them to, you know, effectiveness quickly, right? And whether you measure, whether you measure that by time to first deal or time to hitting quota or whatever, whatever it is, the challenge is the same, whether you've got five people or or a hundred people in your, in your sales team. And, so we we think that it's not too late or not too early at all to invest in in something certainly like Lessonly, and then as you move up the maturity journey, for sure we we of course think there's other you know other additions you can do to to managing sales enablement, but you know the fundamentals of needing to onboard, get people time to 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 value quicker, being able to coach them is there, and you know notwithstanding you know the products that we sell, 
any products that are helping to improve seller productivity, seller efficiency, and that sort of connectivity in this sort of now at a minimum hybrid world, in, in the most case virtual virtual world, th- those are things that are going to stay. You know, McKinsey and others are, are, are talking about this was going to happen regardless of COVID or not, this sort of digital sales and marketing transformation. It's just that 2020 was an acceleration of those things and we've brought forward a transformation a few years. Uh, so for people who might not be familiar with how Lessonly works, take us back to like when you first started using it. I'm, I'm assuming, did you purchase it shortly after everyone went remote or did you already have it as part of the uh, tech stack? It was already part of our a part of our tech stack. Yeah. So are there templates inside of it to help guide sales training? Do you have to build everything offline and then upload it? How, how would somebody take action with remote sales? Yeah, super, super, super easy to build to build lessons. I mean, I I can I always joke that like I can I can do it right, and if I can if I can do something, then anyone, especially who's a you know qualified at uh, you know building courses and and so forth, can certainly do it. But the beauty is that yeah, there's a lot of a lot of customers that have to do things you know with the design agency to make it to make it look really professional, or they there's a lot of work that goes into taking content and. Yeah, bringing it all together, and you know, like I say, more often than not, that we we find that one of the reasons that people love Lessly is because they can do really engaging content themselves, whether it's you know with with video and images and text and things like that. So it's super easy to build courses and keep them up to date and, and so forth. But it's also good that you know, again, regardless of what tool or anything you're using, you need to make sure. Do people like it? Are people using it? Are they engaged with it? And and can you prove that it's effective in helping them, you know, ramp faster uh, and and sell things as as well? So it's not just in the in the creation, but it's also in the you know user interface, ease of ease of use, reporting, and things like that that you get. And yeah, you know, I think that applies in you know anything when people are looking at their at their tech stack and what they should they should look at. You want things that are going to be well used, are easy to use you know, have a really clear value to the user. And, and you know, we found that with, with Lessonly for sure. That's terrific. Yeah, especially for salespeople who are averse to using even their the tools for their job like CRMs, you know. <laughs> I mean, we, I don't want to, you know, like you, you, I always think that you've got a, you know, you, you've got internal stakeholders, right? And and the, the whole concept of a, a CRM system potentially is more about command and control and, and so forth. And you want, you want, you know, CRM is a system of record and it's useful and serves a good purpose, but you want people to engage with it and be able to do their job in a, in a way that, you know, is potentially fun and interesting. So you solve both for both, both use cases. If you use a CRM as a command and control tool, then, then, you know, you, 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 you're not, you're not up with the times. So tie a bow on this part of the conversation. How, how, how uh, was performance impacted with remote sales learning powering the sales team? I'm, I'm assuming there was you know, top line results, there was individual you know, examples of, of sellers actually becoming more productive and more effective. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, apart from some of the obvious things like our, you know, cost efficiency went up, that was partially also because we weren't traveling and doing, doing things like that. But once you get over, let's say what I call the first, uh, you know, the dark days of, of, of COVID where there was a whole lot of uncertainty and, you know, you couldn't get toilet paper and things like that, right? I mean, there was a, most businesses had a blip, I think, at that, uh, you know, in that, at that period of time. After that, I mean, we saw shorter deal cycles, you know, we, we, we saw, 
higher average deal sizes, you know, of by the way that we'd sort of enabled our, our sellers. Now, again, I don't put that down. You know, you don't just do that by introducing tools. We, we, we changed our processes. We adopted a more value-based approach to, to selling and, and so forth. But, you know, in conjunction with new tools, certainly, you know, made our sellers as effective as, as possible. Did you triple revenue or something like that? Not in the not in the period since COVID, but you know we, we've certainly been growing at uh, strong double digit growth. Yeah. So you came on in late late 2019, and you know having spent most of your career at a huge global company, you're obviously hired to take seismic kind of to a whole new level. What was the state of affairs in ops before you came on the scene? And I guess in other words, what did what did you uncover in your first ninety? Yeah, it, it was more probably earlier than the than the first. 90 what and I, I see this in you know especially with a lot of you know my peers at, at other organizations and, and so forth was you know a sales-led organization that you know had had done really well but the infrastructure wasn't there so from a systems um, point of view being a tech company we had a lot of tech but wasn't necessarily as well integrated as as as, as it could be or everything was was, was automated yeah you know, the unique challenge being an enablement company I wanted to make sure that you know we were best in class at enabling our own sales our own sales force and so that was probably one of the biggest topics to make sure that also that our usage and integration of you know our own platform at the time seismic and now you know seismic and our live social and, and Leslie and so forth that all of those things together as a platform you know were really well well used the other one was data and i think this is a common challenge for many organizations of a similar stage is that data and analytics is not necessarily something that's you know organized and you know you have a you know a source of truth and and you know business intelligence tools that are that are used and so forth so you know my recommendation also based on what i did at the at the time two years ago was was invest in on the on the data side to really make sure that people know what's going on in the business people can get the analytics that they that they need to know what's happening with customers to know what's happening with their internal business because when you're investing in operations and enablement you also have to prove the effectiveness of that function the only way you can do that is by really you know, measuring the things that matter so you know we we invested quite heavily in um in our business intelligence tools which you know which i certainly recommend to anyone at the, the same stage as well so with the tech integration, you said there were some issues with technology integration. You're referring to across the go-to-market tech stack, like things weren't, infrastructure wasn't properly built or just referring to your own platform? No, not our own platform, just anything in general. And, and you know, it's, it's where you have point solutions that are, that are put in place. And again, a very common challenge that I, that I see is, and you've got to sit back and do an audit of all the tech that you, that you have. And, I, I, you know, so many tech software companies buy a lot of tech, right? Because there's, there's also, you know, supplier, partner type uh, deals going on. You know, uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, let's do a bit of this, bit of that. And, and the, the, the evolution of products is so fast. And so, people, it's hard to keep up with what's going on in the market, which is the best solution. And there's so many solutions in, in general. But, you know, I would certainly advocate for a you know, a, a pretty thorough audit. You know, anyone who's taking a new role in, in operations should should really do a very thorough audit of all the systems that are in that are in place. Should work out which systems really fit the use cases that they that they need and rationalize, integrate, and think about everything that you can automate. But you have to do you have to do the audit in conjunction with 
like the way you want people to work. You know, if you work for Gong, Gong wants you to work, you know, out of Gong. You know, you work for Outreach, Outreach wants you to work out of Outreach. You work, maybe you want to, people want to work out of the CRM. Like every organization has a different way that they want to, that they want to work. And that's okay. So there's no like perfect formula for here's how you should do it and here's the exact perfect tech stack that you should have. But you have to think about, what's going to suit your needs, you know, based on the use cases, the way that people use the system, what you need them to do, and then, you know, and then look for all opportunities to rationalize and, and integrate. What were some of the things you found, like some examples specifically of during your audit, you're like, ah, there's, there's overlap here, or this point solution is not being used by anybody. You have, do you have any examples you can recall? Yeah, I mean, like we had multiple sales engagement platforms that were that were being used in the in in the business. We had, I mean, even like this is you know right, right when I when I joined, there was a there was multiple chat you know programs being used in the in in the company. There was you know even you know to to that type of that type of thing. So there was some direct overlaps like that. I mean, if you have you know two products that really do essentially the same thing, you need to you know you should decide and do one. That's fairly obvious. But there are also ways of working that are in a, that are inefficient. You know, if somebody is looking at data and reports out of one system, somebody is looking at data and reports out of another system and they don't tie together, you cause a whole lot of inefficiency. If somebody is talking about net retention and they're using a figure from over here that doesn't match a figure from over there, you spend a ton of time trying to figure out what's right. So, you know, in addition to the systems, it's more the information you're getting out of the systems that you have to make sure and that you direct people to you know, either where you want them to go or you bring things together in a, you know, in a sort of organized way. The systems really should come later, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's my whole point about figuring out what it is you want to do. What do people need to know when they're doing their job? What, what it is, what are the key things that will make them better at their job and then figure it out. But so many tech companies are not, are not like that. I mean, tech, tech companies see a tech and they, they, they buy it, but don't necessarily you know, work backwards to think about really what problem are they solving. Why do you think that is? And why do you think that you, why do you think you had a different viewpoint coming into Seismic than, you know, all those other tech companies you just referenced? Well, I don't think, I I don't think anyone has a, I don't think I have a particularly different view to most people. I don't, I don't know too many people in my position that think that they don't have enough tech. You know, I mean, there's different industries, you know, when when I came from, you know, from, from working at Siemens Health, Health and Ears, and it was more about, Looking to invest in in certain tech technologies because you know there to have there was a very good organized process to make sure that things weren't duplicated or anything like that around the world. But that also meant decision making was very slow at um, you know rolling out technology and so forth. Whereas at a you know a, just pick a theoreticals Series C Series D software company growing really fast, got lots of got lots of money, lots of people that are tech savvy. They see something they like, sort of the shiny object syndrome, and say, "We have to have this. It'll solve for this particular." And there's there's not a there's no process that's in place. You know, there's not a procurement department in those sort of companies. There's you know, and, and there's you know, the decision making might be might be looser, and so it's easier to put something in place that that gives a sort of bit of short term gratification, but then over time, if you don't focus on making sure it's integrated, making sure that the process, you know, that you're really solving for what you thought you were solving for, then you just build up a proliferation of tools. Do you think it's incumbent upon 
senior RevOps people to change the those dynamics, to change the way things are purchased without adding too much bureaucracy? And do you think there's a happy medium, I guess is what I'm saying, from like the old way where there's a procurement system and then the new way where you just have like end users doing all the research and buying of, of software? Yeah, yeah abs- abs- absolutely. I mean, you know, there's great companies that are making a, a you know an entire business out of that like you know a vendor you know for example is offering really value added services doing doing outsourced procurement for software companies right and they're able to give expertise in that you know in that in that area or you know you have you need to i mean we we've just developed like you know we've just put in place a procurement department at um, at seismic and you know the the procurement person here is is great because I understand what we're trying to do, understand what we're trying to solve for, and and there's been no noticeable slowdown in um, in anything, you know. So you've got to you've got to do it sort of step by step. But you must have. Uh, that's where I think it's incumbent on RevOps people to own, you know, the the Martech stack, let's say the you know the sales and marketing tech stack at, at least, because if you don't, and of course you serve those leaders in that in that in that regard, but. You need to move the organization from people saying we need to deploy this piece of software. You need to move them to a demand management model where they say to you, I need to solve for this problem. Please tell me what software or what, you know, process plus software plus enablement plus whatever that we can put in place to solve for that, you know, for, for that need. And that's, that's incumbent upon ops professionals to, to do that. If the ops team just implements, if, if you're a, if you're the CRO and you come to me and say, you know, deploy system XYZ, you know, I've just, I had a coffee with the CEO of Marketo, so you should deploy Marketo. That, and, and the ops person just says, yes, I mean, you're, you're not doing your job. You've got to, um, I mean, Marketo is a great system, by the way, but you've got to do your job and say, you know, do we have something that does the same thing? Is this better? What can I retire? You know, do we, is it really just deploying a system or is it actually that, you know, our current system that people are not enabled on properly or what have you? You know, you've got to do that. Yeah, for sure. So that's such a good point. Does the, does the procurement person uh, report to you? Do they report into the- no, so I mean, procurement in most uh, organisations I've seen for reports into a finance um, department, which I think is good as well. You know, as companies mature and 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 grow up, it's good to have a little more financial responsibility as things uh, as things improve, right? You know, you talk about a lot of companies, you know, growing like like seismic are. I mean, a lot have have ambitions to do an IPO or or things like that, and to do that, you've got to have a certain scale and certain set of processes in place and i mean i've found that at at seismic has been a great reception to the things that are put in place to help us scale and grow and so even you put in place processes around certain things you know let's let's talk about pricing for for example i mean if you setting pricing policies setting discount rules setting things like that can be like a you know a really big topic if you're used to just selling for whatever price and taking every deal at at whatever price but if you if you do it well you can grow deal sizes for reps they they get to quota faster they get they get more commission and so forth so there's wins on both sides as long as you don't do it in a you know authoritarian sort of way and it's the same with processes around procurement or anything anything else if you do it in a way that it helps people do their do their job you know then it's then it's better a lot of companies obviously don't have tech companies, growth stage companies don't have 
procurement people. So RevOps are the procurement people, or even worse, sales leaders are the procurement people. So how, how does it work at Seismic? Like uh, for a company that's maturing like you guys, does uh, sales and marketing leaders, they realize that they need new tech and then they go through RevOps and then RevOps goes to procurement? Is that how it flows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my expectation is also that like people in RevOps are kind of keeping an eye on the market and are scanning the market for, you know, for new technology as well, right? So I get pitched to a lot the same as, you know, our CRO does or chief marketing officer and, and so forth. But again, if you're, you're not adding anything strategically, if you're just the implementation of technology department, right? But if you're, if you're identifying that, hey, look, we don't have anything around you know, intent or we we could fix our quote to cash process and optimize it and here's some recommendations we, we have. I mean, that's the type of thing that I always recommend people in, in ops doing. So, keeping abreast of good technology but really looking at the business at a flight level that enables them to figure out where they could add value and then jumping in to do it. And, you know, part of the answer is tech but, you know, often it's also process change or, or other things. One of the first things you did in the first 90 days was do a big audit. Uh, you also mentioned uh, implementing BI and more, uh, adding more transparency across the business, especially go to market. Was that something you did in, in the first 90 or the next 90? It was pretty close to the first 90, but it was, uh, yeah, it was the second 90. So I, st- I started in, in September and then, you know, we launched many of those things at sales kickoff, which was like five, five months after. So gotcha. So where, where did you see some of the weaknesses in the, the data, you said it was, there's a little bit of lack of organization. So what did you do to, to tackle that head on when you came in? I, th- I think the biggest challenge is that, you know, the, that it's, actually, it's, not, it's not that organizations don't have data. It's that it's not, it's not organized. It's that it's not in a place that people can find it easily, that it's not in a place where you can self-serve, that you can look up reports and so forth. So, yeah, the biggest topic for us was deploying a you know, business intelligence tool. And since then, we've mature a lot around the architecture and so forth of our, of our data. But you've got to be deliberate with that. You've got to clean the data. I mean, it's super unsexy work to do, you know, data deduplication and, uh, you know, conventions for how you name your accounts and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Super unsexy work, but you have to, you have to do it. But the biggest weakness was taking insights out of the data, you know, like there's a, there's a sort of maturity that people go along and, and people are happy with certain levels of reporting. But, you know, really you've got to, you've got to figure out, you know, especially as an ops professional, ops professional that earn, you know, earn their money, really identifying opportunities for improvement and taking actions with the, with the various leaders based on what the data is telling them. So for us, it was about making it accessible, making it, making it visual, making it usable, and then uh, using that to change, you know, to change whatever outcome we, uh, you know, we saw was going wrong or. I think that's a big thing that, you know, we I interview a lot of ops people on this podcast and we talk to a lot of them at, at Scale Matters. And, and one of the things that we, we've noticed is that there's such a heavy focus on tech. We just talked about that. We beat that dead horse just uh, the last 20 minutes. And then there's a, a focus on reporting, right? And so a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of effort and even tech that goes into that and dashboarding and, and for more mature people, BI. But the insights piece is what's still missing. And oftentimes, RevOps people are just running around solving problems for other people so much that they can't even get time to put into the insights. And maybe they don't even have the budget to hire an analyst to do the insights work. Talk about why insights are so critical. Let's drill down into that a little bit and, and how you guys go from actually just getting good data and then doing the BI thing so you can actually make it easy to find stuff. That's only two steps. There's a third step. So talk about that. 
Yeah, so fi- finding stuff is exactly right. I mean, look, that's that's good. If you can't find anything, moving from not finding anything to finding it is a good step. The next thing is you've got to incorporate it. You've got to make it – you've got to move from like ad hoc reporting to rhythm of the business that has data and insights and things built into it, right? So, whether that be your forecasting process, your pipeline process, review of – you know, your, your inbound leads, you're reviewing, you know, some of the KPIs of your, you know, BDR team or something like that. You've got to incorporate data and insights into all of those meetings. I mean, you know, it's a very different discussion if you were, if you, if you and I sit down and look at the same dashboard all the time, look at what's working, what's not working, where there's risk in, in deals, where, where we could take certain action, whatever the case may be. Or if we just sit down and I say, hey, what do you think about, you know, this, that and the other and we just have a talk for half an hour and we're not using, we're not using that. So, a big part of it is incorporating it into the regular running cadence of the, of the business. The other part is making it an expectation that the, the frontline sales leaders are always using data and, and insights to drive conversations with their teams and and it's it's using it's doing that sort of triangulation of gut feel and and you know qualitative comments about what's going on together with quantitative insights it's no good being a revops team or a finance team or any team that's just looking at your own dashboards and wondering about what's going on in the in the business you've got to you've got to incorporate the insights into that regular running operating rhythm of the, the business set, you know, and, and that everybody has to get used to it. Do you feel, so you just explained, I think you explained that RevOps is the one who should actually own turning the visualizations, for, for lack of a better word, into actual insight, actionable insights, and then share those with sales leaders to determine next steps. How does the RevOps team at Seismic derive insights? What's the process look like for that? And who, who's responsible? Yeah, so I mean, we, we've invested in a in a in a BI tool to create a whole bunch of different reports for different people, whether they be for you know the marketing team or the the sales team or you know customer success team, whatever the case may be. Now, some of those are things that they you know might want to look at occasionally, right? That are that are not part of the regular you know operating rhythm of the of the business, and those are more there for informational as they need them and so forth. But the core things that we say, look, it's really important that we do a rigorous review of MQL to sales accepted opportunity, or it's important that we do our out of quarter, we really have a really good view of our out of quarter uh, pipeline, or we need to look at the compliance of customers using our product, like, you know, are they are they oversubscribed to licenses and do we have an opportunity to go back and charge them? Whatever those, whatever, those are some examples of things that are, for us are critical. We have taken those and incorporated those into a regular process. You know, we've documented the process. We've said, this is when we're going to talk about these things, you know, on which day of the month, this is the questions we're going to ask. These are the things we're going to dig in. Now, it's not that RevOps owns that process, right? Each of the business owners need to needs to own their, their forecast or their bookings or whatever it is. But producing that playbook, producing the, the reports and insights is, you know, is what RevOps needs to needs to do. Your company, when you guys have executive meetings, is do you kick off the meeting with like state of the business, here's where we're at, here are the numbers? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, we certainly can get better at, uh, at that, but the answer is yes, right? Having standard, uh, standard set of reports that you, that you look at and, you know, again, standard agenda, standard way of doing things. Everyone's got to get used to it and you've got to do that over and over and over again. And then you get to a discussion, not about 
Are these numbers right? Is this really what's going on? I don't agree. Like that is garbage. Like you have to move beyond those type of discussions to basically, here's what it tells us, undisputed version of the truth. Now let's discuss qualitatively what happened and what we're going to do about it. So, yes. What results have you seen by being kind of an insight-led go-to-market engine? I mean, it's a little bit like we talked about before. I mean, we, we measure a bunch of key KPIs, you know, about sort of go-to-market efficiency, right? But some of the key ones for us, you know, obviously around growth, but there's things like win rates, you know, I'll, I'll use as an example. I mean, so we locked arms around, you know, specific competitive campaigns a few quarters ago with some specific goals of increasing win rate. And, you know, we see that then in the, in the, in the data afterwards. And we were able to, we did, you know, really deep analysis of wins and losses and, and why and, and so forth. And that was a very data driven approach. You know, historically, we might not have known was it really working. It would have been more anecdotal. We wouldn't have been able to tweak, you know, exactly what happened. So we're doing now a correlation of what price did we win at? You know, what price was, you know, this particular competitor at and, and so forth. So that, you know, that's a good example that we've, um, that we, that we've seen. But most of our, our go to market metrics around, you know, sales marketing efficiency and deal size and cycle time and deal velocity and so forth are all going in the right direction. Wow. And culturally, have you seen a shift? Yeah. I mean, and, and it, look, it's, it's interesting because. If you come in, you know, we, we have people come from you know, bigger companies like Salesforce or DocuSign and things like that and come in and, uh, you know, like used to using things like a configuration pricing quotation uh, system or are used to, you know, going through a certain price approval process. Whereas if you're employee number seven or eight at Seismic, you know, some of the contracts were done on a napkin or, or, or what have you. And so that the evolution is different. But, you know, I've seen nothing but people embracing the fact that, by doing these things, we're going to increase our overall enterprise value. That it's in everyone's best interest to do it. That you know, and and I would say that doing some of these things about growing up, as well as taking care of some of the things that really bother your internal stakeholders, like make the approvals process as fast as you can. You know, look at make really fair commission plans. Be really clear on you know internal SLAs about when things will get done and, and so forth. If you do those things in conjunction with, you know, introducing a bit more process and, and, and rigor around things, it works as well. Okay. The, the last major thing I wanted to ask you about is M&A. Obviously, Seismic has put multiple companies together, Percolate, Grapevine 6, Lessonly. I don't know if you've done another one since we last talked, Toby, but what's it been like when you're uh, merging two ops teams or multiple ops teams, data models, tech stacks, what are some of the challenges that you faced and with that and uh, how did you solve them? Yeah, look, it's, it's been super, super interesting. So some of the companies you mentioned, there are different stages of maturity and, and different sort of levels of harmonious tech stack or, or, or not. Now, you know, Lessonly is the largest company out of those three that we're, we're integrating and we're doing that right. We're doing that right now. You know, a few learnings is, I mean, you, I mean, you, you have to integrate ops enablement teams you know straight away because you need everybody to be stacked hands around what's the pipeline looking like you know how are we going to do things with the field who if you've got this cross sell joint sell motion how's it going to work there's a lot of really tactical things you have to solve for the sales team so my you know advice is bring like ops teams together like straight away you don't want the sales teams to be you know, bothered and, and, you know, you don't want to change quotas, you don't want to do all these sort of things during a, during a year, but 
quickly bringing the ops teams together and figuring out, you know, what are the processes for some of these really basic things? How do they get deals approved? In which system do we do it? And so forth. And then the long pole in the tent is always the CRM integration. So, you know, you got to work backwards from Got to work backwards from from that, and you know my general suggestion is as once you can, as soon as you can, get everyone in one CRM system, then you can, you know, then you can sort of deprecate the other the other tools quickly. But you've got to solve for the day to day. You've got to make sure that the running business can can keep going. So you know that's been you know always our focus throughout integrations is you know sort of do do no harm to anything that's that's uh, that, that's running. What's what do you think is a reasonable time frame for these things? You said getting the day-to-day stuff, getting the ops people and enabling people talking right away. Is that like day after the announcement goes out? Is that like, you know, towards the end of, you know, when the deal's coming together? Do you start that uh, pretty much like before the actual deal's announced? Like what's the timeline of that? And then, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll uh, wait. Yeah. So pre, I mean, look, day one, like people need to know, uh, do I, am I selling something different? Is my, do I, is my pricing different? Is whatever. There's a whole series of day one things. No, no question. You cannot, absolutely cannot go into day one with like salespeople or customer success people or whatever unclear on did their job change or, or not. And by that, it's also not just did their actual job change, but did they have to follow a different process? So you have to get, you have to have playbooks for day one. You have to, you know, have, resources on hand from the ops team i mean we were we were having daily sort of office hours with the ops team for to make sure if anyone had any questions what what to do and we 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 used our own products of course to you know create a whole lot of content for for people whether that be training content also resources for people to look at so you've got to do that all pre day 1 and ready to go from day 1 and then my follow up to that is what's a reasonable timeline for doing the kind of the you said the CRM, which is the long pull in the ten here. What's a reasonable timeline for that? And you got the tech stack and uh, data model integration reporting, all that. Yeah, assuming like a sort of full tech stack. I mean, it it does realistically take you sort of nine to twelve months to to fully deprecate another you know, CRM system and move move off. You know, and that's also driven by you know contracts that you might have in place with other vendors. And and really, again, mate, for me, you've got to apply a principle of do no harm. But as quickly as possible, agree on this is the way where we're doing it and move people into it. But nine to twelve months is typically the the last things to happen, which is you know turning off the uh, CRM system and so forth. Last question for you, Toby. I want you to describe the perfect ops team for a modern go-to-market engine. I think it's good for younger companies to hear how they should be uh, building it out. I mean, the, the, I think the perfect RevOps team definitely covers all the go-to-market functions, the revenue, the revenue functions. So, you know, marketing operations, sales operations, customer success operations. I think then there should be, you know, an enablement team. Of course, I would say that working from an enablement company, working across the go-to-market engine and a data and analytics team. So, you know, you've got the sort of marketing sales and, and customer success teams that take care of process tools and so forth but you've got a team that brings it all together from an enablement perspective and you've got a team that ties it all together to make sure that the the systems and the data is is integrated Mm -hmm. is there a revops headcount that should be growing proportionally to the sales headcount is there a way you think about that so I've seen different ratios ranging from anywhere between one to five to one to twenty, right? And that depends a lot on the functions that are that are that are included. But I think if you include enablement resources, and if you're if you're really a fast-growing company that's got a lot of you know need for productivity and efficiency and, and so forth, you can get a lot of scale with a with a sort of one to ten 
ratio, you can get a lot of value, but it does depend a little bit on the starting point. Yeah, yeah. And then who should ops roll up to? I mean, different companies do it differently. Some roll up to the CRO, some to the CEO, some CFO. Uh, what's your view on that? So when I joined Seismic, I was rolling up to the CRO. I now roll up to the CEO because we've expanded ops sort of, um, you know, really across the, across the company. I don't think it matters as long as you have a very clear mandate on, you know, what it is that you're going to do. I mean, I always supported the chief marketing officer, you know, head of customer success. CEO, like a number of internal stakeholders. So, you know, my view is that RevOps has got to be as sort of independent as possible, but it doesn't mean that they can't roll up to, you know, a CRO or, or wherever, as long as they have a clear mandate and, uh, and charter. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, hey, Toby, we covered a lot of ground in the last 45 minutes. I really appreciate you coming on Go to Market Excellence. Best of luck with Seismic and, um, and you know, obviously dreams for a massive exit or IPO for you guys. So it uh, sounds like you're well on your way. Keep up the awesome work and, and hope to catch up with you down the road. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Good to- talking to you. At Scale Matters, we believe people make better decisions with better information, not blindly following their gut. That's why we started this podcast. And that's why we offer go-to market analytics that provide high quality data and unbiased insights that strategic B2B revenue leaders can use to make their best decisions. If you want to check it out, go to www.scalematters.com. You've been listening to Go to Market Excellence. If you find what you've just heard valuable, then be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay excellent.